98K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. Police tell numerous activists they'll be charged with unauthorised assembly over a June 4th gathering in Victoria Park. Health officials say they're worried about possible mass COVID-19 outbreaks at boarding houses for foreign domestic workers. And Macau tightens entry restrictions on Hong Kongers. Two dozen prominent pro-democracy activists say the police have told them they'll be charged with unauthorised assembly for allegedly participating in a June 4 vigil in Victoria Park. Richard Pine has details. Authorities banned the annual June 4th event this year, citing restrictions on public gatherings put in place to stop the spread of COVID-19. But thousands defied the ban, pushing aside barriers meant to keep them off the football pitches, where people would usually gather to light candles and commemorate the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Thirteen pro-democracy figures, including members of the vigil's organiser, were already facing incitement charges over the event. And now at least 24 activists say they've been told they'll be charged with unauthorised assembly. District Councillor Lester Shum says the move shows the police can't even tolerate a totally peaceful gathering. He says the charges are an attempt to harass and intimidate them. Upon charging us, the Department of Justice can demand or request the judge or the court to confiscate our passport or limit our freedom to leave Hong Kong. I think this is what the Beijing government wants. It wants to limit the freedom of movement of Hong Kong activists to voice about the situation of Hong Kong over the international community. Other activists who say they've been told by the police they'll be charged with unlawful assembly include a former leader of the Demosisto group, Joshua Wong, lawmakers Wu Chi Wai and Chu Hoi Dick, and district councillors Tiffany Yun and Janelle Leung. The Catholic Diocese has asked its primary and secondary schools to make sure students can learn about Hong Kong's new national security and anthem laws and to help children nurture what it calls a correct understanding of their national identity. In a letter to school supervisors and head teachers, the diocese said that staff should guard against attempts to politicise classrooms and prevent anyone from using schools to promote their political ideas. Health officials say they're worried about the prospect of large-scale coronavirus outbreaks involving boarding houses for migrant workers after another recent resident tested positive. The helper stayed in a hostel in Shengwan last month before moving to the home of her new employer. Yesterday, another helper who'd stayed in boarding houses was confirmed to have the virus. Here's Dr. Chuang Shuk Kwan from the Centre for Health Protection. We are worried there's a possible outbreak in this household settings because Singapore has a similar experience and usually in these hostel uh, settings they are usually crowded and share facilities that is easily to transmit the new COVID-19. That's why I think the relevant government departments will look into it and see what we can do. 95 new infections were recorded in Hong Kong today, with all but four of the patients contracting the virus locally. Meanwhile, an 85-year-old coronavirus patient has died, taking the death toll linked to COVID-19 in the SAR to 44. Macau has tightened restrictions on people arriving from Hong Kong, requiring evidence of a negative coronavirus test taken within the past 24 hours. Those who are allowed in will be put in quarantine for 14 days. The move comes after Guangdong authorities implemented similar measures as Hong Kong grapples with a surge in COVID-19 infections. The Foreign Correspondents Club says reporters in Hong Kong are experiencing highly unusual visa problems. It's called on Beijing and Washington to stop using the media as a political weapon. Timmy Sung has details. 
In a statement, the FCC says multiple media outlets have reported delays in getting visas in recent months, with journalists of various nationalities affected. In some cases, the delays have prevented reporters from working, it says. The difficulties come as Beijing and Washington clash over reporter credentials. The Trump administration has placed visa and headcount restrictions on some state-controlled Chinese media in the U.S., while Beijing has responded with tit-for-tat restrictions, including expelling a group of reporters from multiple U.S. outlets who were also banned from working in Hong Kong. The FCC condemns the restrictions placed by both sides, saying it opposes action being taken against journalists for decisions made by the home countries. It says this downward spiral of retaliatory action helps no one, not least of all the public, that needs accurate, professionally produced information now more than ever. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. The vice president of China's Supreme People's Court says Hong Kong's national security law will only give people more freedom, not less. During a one and a half hour online forum, reporters put questions forward in relation to how suspects' rights will be protected and what roles mainland courts will play. But no answers were forthcoming, as Maggie Ho reports. During an online forum organized by the pro-government think tank the Our Hong Kong Foundation, Jiang Wei spoke at length about reform and innovation in the mainland's judicial system, which he said had made justice more accessible to the people. He said that on the mainland, law enforcement agencies are strictly prohibited from extorting confessions by force, and court proceedings are streamed online so the whole community can scrutinize the process. Several video clips were played during his speech to explain how the mainland's judicial system has modernized. Reporters watching the speech were invited to type out questions to be put to Mr. Jiang by the host. Several Hong Kong media outlets asked about the newly enacted national security law. Will Hong Kong lawyers be allowed to defend suspects taken across the border for trial? What preparations is the top mainland court making to handle any national security cases from Hong Kong? And will common law principles be considered by mainland courts? None of these questions were picked by the host, however. Instead, Mr. Jiang was asked to explain the merits of the security legislation and how mainland laws manifest the principle of being people-oriented. A court in Guangzhou has sentenced a Canadian to death for making drugs. Zhu Wei Hong was found guilty of producing 120 kilos of ketamine. The ruling comes after two other Canadians were sentenced to death on the mainland on drug trafficking charges last year as a diplomatic row escalated with Canada over the arrest of top Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. An infectious diseases expert is calling for mass testing of all of the thousands of foreign domestic workers staying in boarding houses. But as Timmy Sung reports, a representative of helper agencies doesn't think it's a good idea. Infectious disease specialist Ho Park learns that authorities should not underestimate the risk of clusters of infections at crowded boarding houses, especially given the devastating COVID-19 outbreak among migrant workers in Singapore. The University of Hong Kong experts said testing could be done in one or two days, and if there were positive cases, the helpers in the dormitories should all be quarantined. According to estimates of a representative of helper agencies, some 6,000 migrant workers are currently staying in dormitories as they await visas to work in Hong Kong. 
Theresa Liu from the Association of Hong Kong Manpower Agencies said the waiting time for work visas is now as long as two months because many of the officials who would normally process them are working from home. But she says she doesn't think testing the stranded helpers is a good idea. Even now you take the test and then they are negative, but they are still stay there. You know, so how how can you think it within these two months they will not have problem? So you you think it's not a good idea? Yes. Now in our boarding house we have to take the temperature even in the morning and in the evening and then we are not allowed them to go out and then they have to clean the house every day two times. I think it's more better than how can you test every day, you know. Meanwhile, the chairperson of the Hong Kong Employers of Overseas Domestic Helpers Association says maids have been spotted flouting the mask-wearing rule. Betty Young urged the authorities to strictly enforce COVID-19 rules. I remember in uh, TVB news, I even heard that one Indonesian girl say that they are not afraid because they are protected by their goal. Now this is, sometimes I think, I hope they understand they must help themselves. God help those who help themselves. Mrs. Young says some employers have been put under stress by the helpers, insisting on leaving the house on their day off. But she said all they can do is to remind the workers to take precautions to maintain their health. The MTR Corporation says it suffered a first half loss of $334 million as it faced unprecedented challenge due, challenges due to the pandemic. The company made a profit of $5.5 billion in the same period last year. CEO Jacob Kam says the firm's finances remain solid and its business is diversified. Total patronage has dropped by 38% as compared to last year. Together with the revaluation loss from investment property, attributable loss to shareholders during the first half of 2020 was $300 million Hong Kong dollars. Our mainland of China and international businesses were also impacted to different extents by the COVID-19 pandemic. For our business in mainland of China, we are expecting a gradual recovery. For international business, our teams are working hard to minimize the financial and operations impact. CK Asset Holding reported a 58% plunge in interim profit to $6.4 billion as a number of the conglomerate's core businesses were hit by the pandemic. It says property sales and rentals, hotel services, aircraft leasing and its UK pub operations were all affected. The group has declared an interim dividend of 34 cents a share, around a third less than last year. Here's the company's chairman and managing director, Victor Lee. We're looking at acquisitions, we're looking at new opportunities. This is the uh, first part of the uh, virus situation. We think that uh, there's still a lot of um, challenges that will generate be generated around the world. And these challenges uh, will generate opportunities for us. That's why we'd like to have a good uh, war chest to look at uh, new opportunities. We're still at an acquisition mode. The other conglomerate owned by the Lee family, CK Hutchison, has posted a 29% drop in half-year profit to $13 billion. It also trimmed its interim dividend by around 30% to 61.4 cents per share. The owner of Park and Shop Supermarkets and personal care chain, Watson, says business was hampered by a reduction in sales due to temporary store closures. Its energy and port businesses were also severely hurt. Canning Falk is a co-managing director of the group. This first half in 2020 has been a very, uh, I won't, a very exciting year in, in a sense because the, we witnessed the huge drop 
and fluctuations uh, in the oil price. And then uh, we also witnessed the COVID-19 uh, that affect initially Hong Kong and Asia, China and Hong Kong, then Asia, and then the rest of the world. Overseas now, a ceremony has been held in the Japanese city of Hiroshima to mark the 75th anniversary of the world's first atomic bomb attack. At least 150,000 people were killed in the nuclear blasts in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bombs, the bombings started a strong anti-nuclear movement in Japan, but now with an increasingly aggressive China and a nuclear-armed North Korea, the remaining survivors of Hiroshima worry that that could be about to change. The BBC's Rupert Wingfield Hayes is in Tokyo. Each year, on August the 6th, Japan stops to remember the tens of thousands incinerated at Hiroshima and to recommit itself to the abolition of nuclear weapons. But three years ago, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe broke that tradition. He refused to sign a new UN treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. That refusal shocked and angered many Hiroshima survivors, people like 83-year-old Keiko Ogura. I was surrounded by a tremendous flush, you know. From her home in the city, she told me she fears Japan's commitment to never building nuclear weapons is weakening. Survivors have a strong fear. We have many power plants. That means there are materials, plutonium we have, and we have the technology to create nuclear weapons. Might be easy. If we are said go. If it wanted to, experts believe Japan could build a nuclear weapon very quickly. It has a stockpile of 47 tons of plutonium, more than any other non-nuclear weapons state. Few people here want to talk about it. The histories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki mean it is still a taboo subject, even today. But the view that Japan may one day have to build its own nuclear deterrent reaches well beyond the far-right fringe, even into the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. The reason Japan hasn't gone nuclear up to now is because it's protected under America's nuclear umbrella. That was until Donald Trump was elected president. Maybe they would, in fact, be better off if they defend themselves from North Korea. Maybe with we nukes. would be better off, including with nukes, yes. For the first time in post-war history, there is now a president in the White House who has openly and repeatedly said it is time for Japan to defend itself, including building its own nuclear weapons. And a reminder, our top stories tonight. Police tell numerous activists they'll be charged with unauthorised assembly over a June 4th gathering in Victoria Park. Health officials say they're worried about possible mass COVID-19 outbreaks at boarding houses for foreign domestic workers. And Macau tightens entry restrictions on Hong Kongers. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's news wrap program. The Asian Migrants Coordinating Body says that the authorities should be providing accommodation for helpers who are in between contracts rather than leaving it to employment agencies. The group's Eman Villanova says the current coronavirus scares at hostels have highlighted how helpers are being crammed into boarding houses, which can sometimes be in poor condition. He spoke to Anna Marie Evans. Actually, I think one is that uh, we, we wanted to clarify on the uh, issue of boarding houses because it may be misunderstood by the public that it's uh, a boarding house that are being rented by the migrants. Well, well, in fact, it's actually dormitory run by employment agencies. And uh, these dormitories are, I think, one of the basic problems would be it's not 
really regulated or it's not being uh, strictly uh, monitored neither by the Hong Kong Labor Department nor the consulates. And I think one of the uh, basic issues is that the Hong Kong government does not uh, provide any kind of temporary shelter or a halfway house for migrant workers who are unemployed. And, you know, migrant domestic workers being live-in domestic workers doesn't really have their own place. So uh, it, will, it will really be a problem, especially now that there is, you know, a, a pandemic that uh, we were raising it already uh, with the uh, Philippine uh, consulate, with the Indonesian consulate, that, that they should be the one providing the shelter and not the, not the employment agencies because employment agencies are profit-oriented. You know, they're not service institutions. And, and so, you know, the, for them, they will just provide them with, with a space and uh, not really uh, sufficient or uh, adequate for living poorly ventilated, uh, not, uh, doesn't have sufficient uh, bed because they don't want to spend money. Yes. Yeah, some, some experts have called for the mass testing of foreign domestic helpers uh, staying in these, uh, in these dormitories or boarding houses. Do you think that that would work? Basically, we want to have mass testing in Hong Kong. I mean, I think that uh, there's no debate on that. Uh, I think mass testing in Hong Kong or in any place where there, there is, uh, you know, an increase uh, cases of the uh, COVID-19, there should be a mass testing. But I think targeting a specific group of people for mass testing will create a different message uh, to the public. And in this particular case, targeting migrant domestic workers who are already excluded, segregated from the society, uh, it might you know, uh, create more discrimination and exclusion, exclusionary attitudes towards migrant domestic workers. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we are for mass testing, but it should be for all. I mean, for example, the elderly home, you know, care, uh, care homes, uh, there are several cases. Will, will they also do mass testing in all care homes? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, in restaurants, will they also conduct mass testing in restaurants? So why, why will they specifically target migrant domestic workers? Eman Villanova from the Asian Migrant Coordinating Body speaking to Anna-Marie Evans. Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Chung says private elderly care homes in Hong Kong, which have seen clusters of coronavirus cases, are underfunded and underregulated. He told Mike Weeks the government needs to tighten guidelines and boost inspections because many care homes are cramped, unsanitary and understaffed. Many of these workers, health workers, are imported labour and they would be used as much as possible in that if there is a conglomerate of care homes operating under uh, really one owner, then these imported laborers, primarily from the mainland, they would be asked to work in different care homes. And uh, they also live together. And their quarters are really very crowded and uh, situations could be worse than the subdivided units. So if there is one being contracted with a disease, it would be easily spread to other workers. And because they work in different care homes, the consequence could be disastrous. Okay, what is the main problem here? Is it sort of regulation of these homes? Yes, the regulations, the law requirements are really low. 
starving ratio is low. They allow rather uh, narrow places, crowded places, to house these in privately run homes. Uh, for example, the space per capita is 6.5 square meters, which is uh, much smaller than a parking space. Staffing ratio during the night time is one staff, any staff, to 60 frail elderly in care homes. Uh, as you can imagine, this is impossible. They're not required to have any nurse. Uh, they just have two health workers in replacement of one nurse, which is also mind-boggling. But this is the kind of standard uh, we have for our elderly care homes right now. So uh, it has to be revamped as soon as possible. Well, the problem, as you say, is really coming to a head now amid the pandemic. But Arasina Marr, obviously, she said she visits care homes twice a week, so she knows about the problem. You know about the problem that's been there for a long time. Why has nothing happened? Why has nothing changed? Well, I think it's um, not just the inertia, but uh, really uh, it is a clear policy that the government wants to leave this part of the care to the market. Uh, at this point, about 70% of these care homes are privately run. Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Chung speaking to Mike Weeks. Psychiatry experts say there's been an alarming deterioration in the mental health of Hong Kong people, with many suffering from signs of trauma and depression following last year's unrest and amid the ongoing pandemic. The University of Hong Kong polled more than 11,000 people earlier this year and found 4,000 had such serious issues they could be classed as having a mental disorder. The head of the university's psychiatry department, Professor Eric Chen, gave Ben Che more details of their study. We announced uh, data based on a survey, an online survey that has been completed by over um, 11,000 participants. Uh, so what it shows that it is uh, the symptoms of um, uh, PTSD, of uh, trauma, uh, stress, as well as the symptom of uh, uh, depression are quite common. So uh, what we're seeing is that um, uh, traumatic uh, symptom that can be considered as uh, moderate to high occur in about 40% of the respondents and depressive symptoms that can be considered as a moderate level or high level occur in over 70% of the uh, respondents and um, so we actually try to relate uh, the level of these symptoms to the experiences that uh, respondent had over the you know, last few months in terms of the um, social unrest, as well as in terms of the COVID-19 situation, as well as their own personal life stress. Mm. And we found that actually um, experiences in these areas add up to contribute to the uh, symptom levels that we are seeing. And what percentage um, appear to be actually suffering from mental disorders then? Um, we have to be a little bit more careful about um, uh, saying somebody is suffering from a mental uh, disorder. Mm. So what is important to realize is that when under stress, people um, has a uh, psychological reaction of distress that are also manifested in uh, symptoms that are similar to symptoms that are uh, expressed in a disorder situation. The, uh, the thing that distinguishes between them 
is that um, when the external stress can be removed, people who have a disorder will remain in a distress uh, state with the persistence of the symptom. But when the um, uh, stress is removed, people who are only reacting to the stress, their symptoms should uh, improve or disappear. Now, the complication with our situation in Hong Kong at the moment is that we seem to be continuously experiencing some sorts of uh, stress that are fluctuating, that are going up and down, both in terms of the um, uh, social unrest and political situation, as well as in terms of the pandemic situation. So we actually do not have a lot of opportunity for people to see whether their distress will go away um, uh, uh, if the external situation has improved. Mm -hmm. So it is important, uh, and we did that in our survey, to actually ask people that even if they have a little chance to be away from the stressors, even half a day or a day, to observe whether their distress level actually is uh, reduced. And that is a very important uh, uh, signal as to whether the um, condition has actually um, uh, evolved into a stage that we can call a disorder. So yeah. we find that about half the people are reactive to, to the stress in the external environment. The other half seems to be having a more fixed uh, distress state in our survey. A Scottish island has taken the difficult decision to remain closed to visitors despite the Scottish government's decision to reopen the country's tourism industry. The island of Eig has been coronavirus-free and wants to stay that way. Tourism is the mainstay of the island's economy, but islanders say it's just too complicated at the moment. The BBC's Richard Baines reports. Instead of the hordes of tourists who usually come in summer, this Calmac ferry to Egg brings just a few residents and essential workers. Because of social distancing, the ferry can take far fewer people, and islanders depend on it for their own travel. Stop man up. Yeah. Inside we've got uh, two kind of sofa beds that can be... Open. Islander Johnny Jobson would normally be welcoming visitors to Egg's camping pods. It's not so much the problem of visitors arriving, it's how you get them here, given the reduced ferry capacity. You know, so we're going from, I think there's 190 spaces in the Loch Nevis, and that's of course serving some days three islands, and we're now down to 40 a day, so... There's really a logistical issue as much as anything in that uh, how do you equitably share 40 spaces. So here we are at Egg Adventures and there's not much going on here in the shed. It's a pretty forlorn site. It's been dormant since March and I've remained shut until this point and will be pretty much for the rest of the season. Owen Wynne-Jones runs a bike hire business on the island. We've just discussed it as providers and then put it to the community to say, you know, so many of us are going to remain shut regardless. Some of us would like to open and then some of us are ambivalent, if you like. So there's a very democratic process. It was put to a vote 
it was very carefully considered. This was not a knee-jerk snap reaction. There was a lot of thought and a lot of people consulted about actually consciously remaining closed for the time being. A lot of us have not earned for four months. Egg is internationally renowned as an extremely welcoming island, and that's been really hard, saying to people, now is not the right time to come to our island. My biggest concern was an influx of visitors and our only shop on the island having to close. That one shop gets shut down because of a potential outbreak. That's our only means of buying produce on the island to food and drink gone. So naturally that was a major concern for I think a lot of people here. Lucy Conway is the community-owned island's coronavirus coordinator. The simple things that everybody else is taking for granted, for a lot of us it hasn't been worked out for us yet. So for example track and trace, we have to send off for a, a testing kit to an island which we only get three or four posts a week and we have to post it off. You can't test and post in the same day. You can test on a Wednesday, but you can't post it till Friday and you won't get the results back until Monday. And the test probably didn't arrive till the previous Monday. So there are lots of small practical things that we need to work out. The only constraint is the fact that there is nowhere to stay, there is nowhere to eat, there's no taxi to drive you around. And if you manage to get a place on the ferry, you may not get back, but that's not our doing, that's just arithmetic. So there are no actual constraints other than us asking people, please, for your sakes and for ours, just give us a wee bit of time to work this out. A decision on reopening in September is expected next week. Until then, at least, Egg won't be welcoming visitors. We want to really communicate that to people, that we still love you, but unfortunately it's not safe for everyone for you to be here at the moment. Those stories were part of the News Wrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Hi, I'm Lazy Lion. To fight this pandemic, take preventive measures when commuting. Avoid rush hours and busy times and take advantage of flexible working hours. Wear a mask when taking a ride. If possible, open the windows to ventilate the vehicle. Clean your hands with liquid soap and water or alcohol-based hand rub after using public transport or touching public facilities. Social distancing can help prevent the spread of COVID-19. Tips for you and me to prevent COVID-19. Radio 3 Weather. The weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow, mainly fine apart from isolated showers. Minimum temperature of around 28 degrees. Very hot during the day. Maximum of around 33 degrees Celsius with winds that are moderate east to southeasterlies. The outlook... Very hot on Saturday with sunny periods and a few showers early next week. Currently, the air quality health index here in Hong Kong is low, which means the air quality is good. The readings are 1 and 2. At the observatory, air temperature currently 29 degrees Celsius, relative humidity is 89%, and the very hot weather warning is in effect. Back to the music, Simon Wilson sitting in for the world's most durable DJ, Uncle Ray.
David, one hit wonder. Pretty good hit though. Words. Circa, what would that be? About 83, 84 time? Speaking of which, 26 minutes away from midnight. I'm Simon Wilson sitting in for Uncle Ray, the world's most durable DJ, as he shelters in place during this COVID spike. Looking for assorted ballads and easy listening tunes to take us through till one. Two double three double eight two six six is the number. Coming up shortly, we've got tracks from Westlife. We've got some Roger Miller, Johnny Mathis, Bobby Darren, Dinah Washington, 